up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Max Maven. Max is a mentalist whose mind-reading performances have stunned and astonished audiences across the globe. Max is one of the most prolific figures in the Conjuring community, and he's created more original magic than anyone in the world. He's been featured on numerous television programs, including his own TV specials. He's been awarded and acknowledged for being a phenomenal mentalist and magical author, and has shared his knowledge and experience in Magic's leading periodicals and publications, as well as producing his own literature. His list of credits really is amazing, and his thinking on magic and mentalism has influenced countless magicians and our approach to performing mysteries. In the episode, we talk about popcorn magic, you'll understand when we get there, professional wrestling, magic and meaning, how the internet and television have changed magic for better or worse, and more. There are a lot of topics we didn't get a chance to cover, and I'm sure we'll have another wonderful episode down the road. It was such a pleasure sitting down with Max, and I'm sure you're going to love this episode. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com, and if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out the Ambassador Program on artofmagic.com. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print, and you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly. If you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. If you love magical thinking and want to show your support for the show, head over to patreon.com slash magicalthinking. Patreon helps me get better equipment for the show, as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. In return, you'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, tips on style and fashion, and you can spend some one-on-one time with me. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash magicalthinking. Anyway, get into the episode and let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Give me any thoughts, critiques, criticisms you may have, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Anyway, this is the illustrious and incomparable Max Maven. Enjoy. Magicians are afraid of magic. Um, I did say that. (laughs) I heard that. I, I think it was on this podcast, actually. Somebody said to me, Max Maven said... Magicians are afraid of magic. And when I heard that, I recently just read it in uh, Eugene's, one of Eugene's conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I heard it, I went, yes, that's what it is. When I I see the thing, to me, it's trampling on the punchline, quote unquote, of magic, which is wonder. Being afraid of that wonder, you trample on it with a joke or you move on to the next trick too quickly or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not terribly fond of the word wonder. I would substitute the word mystery, but but I think we're talking in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the deal. I think most magicians enter into magic uh, because they see magic as an answer. And I think good magic is actually not an answer. It's a question. And that makes magicians afraid of magic because it's the reverse of what they are trying to use magic for. And they are disturbed by the fact that good magic introduces new questions rather than neatly tying up the loose ends of of the initial questions. 
which is why a lot of magicians step on their on their mysteries and they do a lot of winking yes you know there'll be a a, a, a moment of, of really powerful mystery and the magician will will ruin it by doing the equivalent of winking to the audience as if to say come on i didn't really mean it we don't have to take this too seriously yeah and it cheapens something that is inherently powerful and beautiful or can be can be yes it's no good <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if it's... I'm not sure I would be quite that sweeping. I probably would have been years ago, but there, I think there's a place for... There's a place for popcorn sure. in, in our lives. Uh, not every meal has to be uh, either a gourmet experience or hugely nutritious. Uh, some meals can be one or, or, or both. But sometimes you want just some sugary thing that'll give you a, a quick fix of, of, of happiness. And that's okay, too. Sure. Uh, I wouldn't want to make a complete diet of, <laughs> of what we might call movie theater food. You know, uh, if you live only on that stuff, you're eventually going to die. Uh, well, you're eventually going to die regardless, <laughs> but, but you'll die quicker. Uh, so I think there's room for... for for all types of magic experiences, again, including some that are simply shallow, fun, eye candy. I think that's okay. Yes. Uh, but I think it's okay if that's what you set out to create. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of magicians who delude themselves into thinking that they're setting out to create something that's the equivalent of a gourmet meal or an extra nutritious meal. And in fact, they're generating popcorn. Or they're making popcorn and they have no intention whatsoever and they just happen to be making popcorn. Yeah, they haven't thought about it. I think that's the part that I... I don't... I'm with you 100%. I totally agree that there's a place for popcorn. I just don't want my popcorn to be stale or have too much butter. <laughs> or... Yes, as, as we continue to beat this analogy into the ground... Um, but but yes, obviously, if you're going to make popcorn, make good popcorn. Yes. Uh, even in something as as sort of unimportant as popcorn, there's still you can still tell the difference between good popcorn and bad popcorn, <laughs> right? Yes. So yeah, so if you're going to make popcorn, go for go for good popcorn. Do you think that the majority of the public knows the difference between good popcorn and bad popcorn? <laughs> um, I'm going to run this straight into the ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, they don't if they've, if they've only ever tasted popcorn once. Yeah. And I think that's the case <laughs> to pull this away from the popcorn analogy <laughs> and back into magic. A lot of people have only seen magic once, yes. right? I mean, how many times have, have uh, you or anybody listening to this had the experience of performing magic in some circumstance and someone comes up later and says, boy, I never saw a live performance of this. I saw, you know, a snippet of this on TV or something, but I just, I never realized it could be this kind of experience. So for a lot of people, the first time they experience magic is the only time they experience magic in a way that puts a hell of a responsibility on the performer. Uh, people tend to make assumptions about magic that they don't make about other things. Uh, 
if someone hears a singer and the singer isn't very good, they don't therefore dismiss singing. But every professional or would-be professional magician has had the experience of approaching a venue and being told, no, we tried a magician once. It didn't work. This, this room or this club or this group, magic doesn't work for us. Based on one bad experience, that would never happen with virtually any other type of, of performance. Uh, so there is that strange thing. And, and therefore, if you are the first person uh, that they're ever going to see do magic, you kind of have an extra responsibility that maybe singers don't. Mm-hmm in that sense. <clears throat> but um, back to your, to your earlier question, can the public tell the difference between good and bad popcorn? Yeah, if they've had the chance to sample more than one. You know, uh, I think the public, if they get to see a range of magic, not, doesn't take too long to start developing a sense of, of taste, mm. of aesthetics. Yes. You know, I... I've seen various reviews by uh, by theater critics of, of, of certain magic shows where the critic will make this pronouncement that so-and-so is the greatest magician or the greatest sleight-of-hand artist uh, ever. And they might be right, but, but, but my response is usually, how the hell would you know? Yeah. That's sort of like someone who's never eaten meat being taken to a McDonald's and coming away proclaiming this is the finest beef dish in the history of food. Well, it is for you. You haven't <laughs> tried anything else. So, so you know, I think it would be nice if the public got to see a wider range of magic, uh, including bad magic. I'm not encouraging bad magic, but, but, you know, if someone sees a range of magic that includes bad magic, it gives them a chance to say, oh, there, there's lots of different types, including yes. this type that I didn't care for. And that makes me appreciate what's good all the more. I think, I think about that a lot as uh, a young person and caring so much about this art and, you know, really dedicating myself to the craft of it. And I feel that responsibility that you mentioned earlier. And I talk about that frequently is that, you know, these people don't know better. And we have, I feel, a responsibility to educate them on what this thing is that they think can be, you know, and open that door. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a heavy thing to, uh, to put onto the shoulders of someone who, you know, has a set of color-changing knives in his pocket. Um, but it is there. Yeah. You know, you, you, in performing magic, you are representing a lot of other magicians and again and again because the public doesn't get this wide range of experience that puts more burden on on you the individual mm-hmm. how has the public perception of magic changed as you have been a part of it well speaking as a very old person <laughs> that's not what i meant um <laughs> you know when i was a kid uh obviously there was no internet magic uh, other than seeing, if you had the, the, the luck to see Magic Live, other than that, you basically saw it on television. There wasn't a great deal of magic on television, but then again, the, the television pie was cut into much fewer pieces. Mm. You know, so there were only basically three networks. So even though there was not uh, a lot of magic on TV, when Ed Sullivan had a magician, which was not infrequently... Uh, 
there are only two other shows broadcasting at the same time. So the odds that you would see a magician uh, if that person was on the Sullivan show were pretty high. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there was no one at that time in the 1950s into the 60s. America was lacking uh, a national magician. You know, we, we'd had one since the late 19th century, right? There, there was uh, uh, Alexander Hermann uh, at the very dawn of media allowing for a national magician. Uh, Hermann came and, and filled that slot uh, relatively briefly because he died. But Keller jumped in and now Keller was the national magician. And someone who pretty much everybody knew whether they'd seen him or not. And he did a lot of touring, so a lot of people did see him. Uh, and then Keller handed it off to Thurston in a politically complicated story that we need not concern ourselves with at this moment. Uh, and then after Thurston, it, was a, it, it got a little bit muddy. We're now talking into the 30s, 40s, that phase, where the, the slot of the national magician was not fully filled by one person, and it was sort of split between uh, Blackstone and Dante. Uh, and then came World War II, which kind of put everything on hold. And then after World War II, there really was no, no national magician. Uh, after World War II, American culture went through a lot of changes. One of the changes had to do with the rise of television in the late 1940s and particularly in the early 50s. And although there were individual magicians who worked on shows like The Ed Sullivan Show or, or uh, Seal Test, Big Top Circus uh, for the kiddies, or, um, but there was no one person who had that kind of identity. Uh, and... Uh, that really didn't change. I mean, in, in, in the start of the 60s, Mark Wilson came along with the Magic Land of Alakazam, which was aimed at kids. And, uh, and Mark was an important figure in all of that. But he didn't have the national... He wasn't in the national consciousness of adults. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely in the consciousness of kids because I was one of them and I watched that show religiously. But uh, there wasn't a national magician at that point. Mark was probably as close as it came. There were several magicians in the 50s. Uh, there were three, basically, American magicians who were kind of expected to fill the role. None of them did. Uh, and the names may mean nothing to your listeners, but they were in no specific order. John Daniel, Kirk Kirkham, and Aubrey. And these were three, at that time, young performers who, who did a, a range of stuff, illusions, but also sleight of hand. Uh, and they were all sort of poised on the brink. And then for various reasons, none of them really did it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there was this sort of opening for a national magician, which didn't really get filled until uh, the early 1970s, when Doug Henning suddenly broke through uh, between Broadway and uh, a special on NBC that got bigger viewing numbers than any magic special before or since. I don't wow. think any magic special will ever get those kind of numbers again, because again, at that time, there were only basically three networks. So, um, so Henning really hit big and suddenly there was a national magician again, and that reopened an awareness of magic, uh, on the part of the general public in a way that had really been missing for the preceding couple of decades. 
Uh, and after some years, Doug's career uh, was doing very well, but then he decided to retire. And, and overlapping with that was the rise of David Copperfield, who understood television really well and understood promotion really well. And so he became, uh, he, he filled that slot, if you will, uh, and, and did so not just in, in the United States, but with a lot of international travel. And, uh, and then things got quiet for a while. And, and for a period of time, the only magic during, during the 80s into the early 90s, the only magic you'd see on TV pretty much was David Copperfield's annual special, Penn and Teller, who had by then, by the mid '80s, had surfaced, but uh, but were doing an occasional talk show appearance. Uh, so they were known to the public, but but not central. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and really nothing substantial happened for a while until surprisingly in the in the mid 1990s. Uh, there was the World's Greatest Magic special on NBC, uh, which to everyone's surprise was a hit. Uh, this on a network where the, 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 the head of uh, NBC had, within the preceding half year, made the statement, there will be no magic specials on my network. And lo and behold, he wound up buying a two-hour special involving no household names, uh, which... Uh, which became the highest rated NBC special of the year, which was kind of shocking. And there were reasons for that. Some of which had almost nothing to do with magic, but there were reasons for that. And as a result of that, because, because television is such a a derivative medium, suddenly there were magic specials galore, uh, on, on all of the major networks. And, and, uh, and so there was a kind of bump of, of, of magic where it was suddenly back on the map. Uh, and the, the, the proof of that was the rise of the masked magician. When the masked magician special, when the first one aired, <laughs> there were magicians who were horribly upset and hurt. And I remember Dean Dill, uh, said to me, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And it, there's no way this can be interpreted in any good way. And I said, yes, there is. And he said, what, what? And I said, well, think of it this way. A year and a half, two years ago, if you had gotten an appointment with a head executive at any network and said, I want to do a special exposing secrets of magic, the executive would have laughed you out of his office and said, nobody cares. So the fact that there is now a perceived market for people who want to know the secrets of magic, as creepy as that may be, <laughs> indicates that magic is back in, in a central position in the pop culture landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of primed everything, uh, and the guy who came along and, and figured out how to do something with it was David Blaine, uh, who had a, a wonderful grasp of television, uh, far beyond what other people seem to understand. And the other thing about David that I've always appreciated, you know, I, I can criticize David Blaine and have, but, but, but there's things about him I like a lot. And one of the things I've always appreciated, uh, and this takes us back to the beginning of this conversation, no winking at all. He was not afraid of mystery. He was not afraid of magic. He was there to make you profoundly zonked by what he did. Uh, he, he wanted you to just, 
drop, drop your jaw open and go, I, I'm, 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 I'm astonished. And, and, uh, and there was never any kind of square up with, with, you know, it's okay. I'm just kidding. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I think, a powerful element within the success of David Blaine. And, um, well, I guess we're still waiting now for whatever the next thing is. Mm. You know, David is, both David Blaine and David Copperfield are still around. They're still performing. Um, Blaine is doing uh, a traveling show, uh, in, in live show, which I haven't seen yet, but I hear it's wonderful. Uh, David Copperfield has his own theater in Vegas and is doing sellout business uh, with putting in new effects. So, so both of those guys are thriving and there are other people who are now coming along with their own takes on, on shows ranging from, uh, shows geared toward the Vegas type of market to, to more personal shows that are being done in theaters. Derek Delgaudio is the, the obvious example uh, of that, who is now doing his, his second theater show, uh, in and of itself, which is a phenomenal piece and which is getting the reaction it, it deserves, which is kind of nice, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I don't think at this moment there's a national magician. And I think that's okay. I don't think there always has to be one person who, who fills that slot. Uh, what I do think is that there is a national awareness of magic, not tied necessarily to one individual, but, but that is healthier than, than what we've had in a, in a long while. I think so that's too. a really long answer to what was barely a question, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciated it, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. Uh, I, 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 okay. I want to just set this on the table. Every time I say I agree with you, it sounds so stupid because, like, just for me personally, everything you say, I just go, "Yeah, uh, I'm with you." But for me, as this person who you know is a bumbling buffoon, to sit here and <laughs> talk with you and then go, yes, I agree. I just am putting this on the table. I know it's ridiculous. <laughs> and I, uh, well, I, I feel, I feel. I, I would say that, that, that declaring that you agree with things I say does not, does not lead to you being defined as a buffoon. Um, <laughs> That's not what I meant. I, I, I meant, <laughs> I am not, uh, I'm not assuming that we are equals in this conversation. Um, well, in some ways we are, and in some ways we aren't. Look, we're, we are the sum of our, our respective experiences, and I've had a lot more experience than you simply because I'm a lot older than you. Uh, but the validity of your experience within your time frame is, is, is not more or less than mine. So, so I don't... Uh, yeah, I, people assume that I'm far more judgmental than I am, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's partly because magicians are, are absurdly literal Given, given that magic is all about fantasy and metaphor mm -hmm. and, and illusion and, and ambiguity, magicians are pathetically literal. <laughs> uh, when Penn and Teller first surfaced, part of their, their big selling point was uh, they, they called themselves the bad boys of magic and they informed the public that magicians hate us. And magicians played right into it. They said, oh, yeah, I guess we do. In, in, instead of thinking about it. So, so uh, magicians tend to be very literal. So the fact that my stage persona has a certain amount of arrogance built into it, uh, 
on the one hand, that doesn't mean that there's no arrogance in me offstage, because there certainly is. But to suggest or to, to assume that there's an equal amount of arrogance in my offstage makeup uh, is, is not... That's pretty short-sighted, I would say. Sure. Uh, so... Well, thank you. I appreciate that and uh, allowing me the space to have a conversation with you because <laughs> I've been a little nervous, to be honest, because okay. I'm, I'm a fan and I, you know, you're a prolific creator and author and I'm not just here to butter your bread, but uh, it's uh, it's justified. But to get back to what I was saying, I agree with you that magic is in a good place in the public perception right now because... This is what I f hear and feel. You can feel the effervescence of it in in the public. I think when you're when you're around people who are performing magic, and you're not at the magic castle, or you're not at like a little bar, but you're you're in, you're out in the world, and you find somebody by happenstance doing magic, and you watch people and their reactions and how they're open to it, or maybe they aren't, but they're. I don't know. In, in the experience that I've had, people are, are more open to it because they think that they kind of get it a little more, maybe? It's hard to say why, um, but, but there does seem to be a greater awareness of magic than there was a few decades ago. Uh, and I think the, the, you know, I made the comment earlier that, that for many people, when they see a magician, it's their first time seeing magic live. And I think that's true, but I think maybe that maybe we're going through a, a, a period of change with that, and maybe a uh, I'm guessing that maybe the number is shifting a little bit, the percentage is shifting a little bit, and, and it's not so unusual for someone to see live magic and say, "Oh, I've seen a magician before," mm -hmm. and then to assess the difference, good or bad, mm -hmm. and that's a good thing rather than basing everything on having seen one magician once. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and it's nice too because not only with, as far as the internet is concerned, not only with YouTube and, uh, you know, people finding, you know, clips from David Blaine specials or they post the America's Got Talent clips on there, people are able to find and digest um, non-explanatory magical content much more easily now, and yeah. then share it amongst themselves. Right. The flip side of that is the explanatory magical content. That yes. The, the minute someone does something on a show like America's Got Talent, there are people who seem to breakneck speed to, mm -hmm. to try to put up explanations, whether mm -hmm. they're correct or not, uh, which is just, I think, uh, both disrespectful and, and rude and creepy. Um, the internet is a two-edged sword. I mean, it's been very good for magic in some ways, and mm -hmm. I think very bad for magic in others. Uh, it's certainly terrific that you can go onto YouTube or a similar uh, place and find recordings of, of great magicians of the past, people who, who you never had the chance to see live because they're not with us anymore. Uh, maybe they predate you entirely. Uh, and, and that's a, a thrilling resource that certainly didn't exist when I was a kid. Um, I also think the, the internet is a fantastic tool for research. Mm -hmm. Right now, I would say we are in the, the best period maybe ever when it comes to magic history. 
uh, the amount of intelligent research being done on magic history right now is astonishingly good. And this comes in no small part because the internet makes research uh, so practical. Uh, there are things I've found on the internet in a matter of, of minutes that had I been working entirely off of print resources in a library could have taken me months. Uh, so it's a terrific period for all of that. Where, where, the, where I think the internet is not very good, uh, is in all of these, uh, streaming and downloads of, of tricks being largely recorded by kids in their, in their bedrooms. Um, and the, I, I'm not dismissing those kids, uh, but what I am dismissing is the quality of what they're putting online. Mm. Uh, because it's, it's become so easy to do. Mm. I mean, you own a computer, there's a camera built in. So you can sit in front of the camera and do whatever you like and post it online and do the whole thing in a matter of an hour uh, or less. And, and this leads to a lot of stuff that is very unfinished. And also a lot of stuff that is, in, in many cases, very unoriginal, mm -hmm. whether the kid posting that knows it or not. Mm -hmm. But no effort seems to be made to find out if it's original or mm -hmm. if it's even good. Mm -hmm. A lot of this stuff has never been performed for human beings. It's just being performed for that camera. Uh, what I think this does is it creates a very big distance between the aspiring magician the person who's watching this content and the act of creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, because there, there's no, there's no evidence of creative process. It's just here's stuff, push a couple of buttons and here's, here's someone teaching how to do things. Mm -hmm. And since it's arguably not theirs, they don't bother to tell you where it came from, how it came about any of that. And so I think the, the, typical magician of this era, old and young, both, uh, are, are, are more removed from the creative act than their predecessors, because there's so little effort required to catch hold of these ideas. Mm -hmm. And they've lost sight of the fact that at some point someone had to sit down and create something They had to say, how do I accomplish this? I have an idea. I wonder how I can massage this into something better. Uh, and so uh, uh, people become collectors of, of technical secrets, uh, but removed from the idea that a human being, one, this secret didn't exist. And then a human being came along and said, I'm going to make something. And they created this idea. And in some cases, that's something that might have happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago to the point that it's, it's now kind of lost as to where it started exactly and how it started. But in many cases, it's something that someone came up with 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but there's no sense, you know, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, that's always been around. And in some cases, no, that didn't exist until you know, 1985 or whatever specific time and place. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there, there seems, that seems to be, uh, obscured and, and that's too bad. Uh, I'd like to see that change. How do you think, because the, the internet is going to continue being the internet and what it is. And so how do we currently begin that change? 
do you think? Well, just be more conscientious. The 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 the, the biggest the biggest way to make any kind of change is to start with yourself. Uh, and so, if if you and by this I mean not you, Elliot, but you, the listener, and Elliot, and anybody else, if if you try to change your frame of reference about things, if you try to find out the historical background of, of the things you do, uh, if you try to get a sense of not only where things come from, but when did they surface? Because that tells you a lot. You learn a lot about magic by finding out what were people doing in 1920 mm -hmm. as opposed to 1820. I mean, there, there's valuable knowledge there. And, if, and if, you, if you change your attitude toward that, toward trying to find out, you may not always succeed, but trying to find that out, it's going to improve the way you interface with magic. And the more people who do it, the more people will in turn be influenced to do it and it'll spread. So that's the, that's the first thing. But the second thing is, since we're talking about the internet, make use of the existing resources. There are some really good resources on the internet. Not as, not as many as perhaps I would like to see, but I can, I can name two in, in this specific area of, mm -hmm. of, of magic crediting and magic history. Uh, well, uh, the, the big dog is, is Ask Alexander. Uh, askalexander.org, which is an arm of uh, the Conjuring Arts Research Center, which is Bill Kalusha's operation in New York, and Al Ask Alexander, which costs money uh, to subscribe to, but it's there. There are different levels of membership, but but it's worth it. You get access to uh, a, a, an immense amount of scanned information from magic magazines and books. Uh, and if you know how to search, you have to sort of learn how to narrow down properly, but you can locate just extraordinary information. Uh, they also publish uh, a magazine that comes out twice a year, edited by Stephen Minch, called Jubichet, and uh, which has some astonishingly good articles. Uh, they tend to be very focused, the articles, on one period or one person. Uh, most of the time. Uh, so it's not a, a general overview of magic, but still these, these individual articles, some of them are sensationally good. So that's one amazing resource that mm -hmm. didn't exist until relatively recently. But there are others. Uh, there is conjuringcredits.com, which is free. Uh, you have to register, but, but it doesn't cost any money. Uh, and this is simply a, an ever-expanding site of credit information. So if you're curious as to where a certain trick, a plot, uh, a move, a gimmick, where did it come from, uh, it very well may be on there. Now, as I say, it's growing, so it might not be on there. But, uh, but it, it's so easy to look, mm -hmm. you might find more information than you thought possible. And... and if it's not there, well, good. And then that gives you something to try and chase down yourself and contribute to that site. Uh, so I think that's a value. There's an, an, another site called magicpedia.com, which I, I think is a little less uh, academically focused. I'll put it that way. Uh, but it's got a lot of information. I think, I think uh, some of that information is incomplete or needs additional checking, but that's... It, it's still a very good 
thing to check on and 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 you know so i mean there are uh, by themselves there there are other similar sites that exist i know there's at least one in german uh i, I think there may be one in front in french so resources are out there uh and and as i say i mean other than Ask Alexander, you have to pay for, but you get a lot in return for the money. Mm -hmm. uh, the other ones are completely free, and and you're foolish if you don't use them, I think. Because uh, if you don't know where you've been, then you don't know where you're going. So finding out the, the background of magic has, has real value. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what you said a little bit earlier, which is, you know, these kids are putting up videos of themselves performing or teaching or so on and so forth yeah. uh, and they don't really have the knowledge of the history or you know they don't they don't quote unquote deserve to be able to share that information yet but I wonder how different that is from let's say you know a kid playing guitar and you know sharing his thing and getting feedback and I wonder if that's not part of the the internet that's it's also good. It could be detrimental, but putting something up that's no good uh, in, a, in a way to sort of build your perch in the community. Uh, oh, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think that's valid. Uh, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who network through the Internet. They don't know anybody in their own area. Uh, sometimes there may be people two blocks away that they don't know of but the internet is is a community of sorts and and as such yeah you you put some stuff up there you get some feedback you you find some online friends you you start exchanging you know magic uh the international brother of magicians which is a big group now it's around the world and it started as a correspondence between three people three relatively young people i think they were still in their teens uh, who back in the 1920s were corresponding as pen pals uh, because email didn't exist. And so these, these three guys were sending each other long letters saying, hey, I, I, I read this great book and it had this great idea in it uh, and I've got a variation and they'd explain the variation or, or just sharing the kind of things that people share now on, on chat boards. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, just a little bit slower in in, in 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 the time it took, but but the concept was very similar, and and eventually after a few years of this, they said, let's make an organization, and they did, uh, completely opposite to the way the SAM began. The Society of American Magicians began as a professional organization. It grew out of. Uh, professional magicians used to meet at Martinka's in New York, a magic shop, and. Uh, hang out and socialize and they started having banquets like an annual banquet and uh and, and this sort of formalized into an organization which was uh centered in new york which was at that time the center of most things including show business and it, membership in the sam was geared toward professional magicians uh some amateurs were allowed to join but they kind of had to prove themselves to be of professional caliber, even if they weren't full-time pros. Uh, and that happened in 1902. And the SAM was, was the, the magic club in the United States and, and one of the key ones anywhere in the world. 
and it wasn't until 1927 that the the IBM came along from this completely opposite thing of amateur young amateurs who who were corresponding. And the initial relationship between the two clubs was very bad. The 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 SAM felt very threatened by the IBM. Who are these punk kids? And 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 they have the audacity to put the the word international in their name. That's because one of the original people was uh, Canadian. So. Technically, they were international. So initially, they were, they were quite opposite. And, and if you look at the... It's interesting. If you look at the numbers of the local groups, this tells a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one uh, assembly of the SAM, the, the, the local groups are called assemblies. And the number one assembly is New York. Uh, number three is Chicago. Number nine is Boston. And it's only when you get to the bigger numbers that you start getting to the smaller, smaller cities, mm-hmm. the kind of in-between cities. Whereas with the IBM, the, their, their chapters are called rings, and the number one ring is St. Louis. And if you, in Boston, I'm originally from Boston, that's why I know these numbers, the IBM ring is number 122. So the IBM rings, the lower numbers tend to go to sort of mid-sized cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually the big cities come along and join in. And, and in the SAM, it's exactly the opposite. Now, over time, the two organizations evolved, for better or for worse, so that now they're pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in fact, there's a lot of, a, a tremendous amount of overlap in the membership. And I think these days you'd be hard pressed to define much difference between the two groups, but they started differently. Um, so I think there are things happening now on the on the internet in the way of networking and community and chat groups and so forth that is so early in its development we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what it's going to become. Uh, and and I'm I'm not against that at all. I think I think potentially it's great. But I, but I think uh, I'd like to see a little more sense of responsibility on the part of, of the kids who are posting videos. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this isn't limited to magic, God knows. But, but, but if you look on YouTube, there are kids who order stuff, whether it's magic tricks or some other merchandise, and then videotape... Well, tape, I've just indicated how old I am. <laughs> they video uh, themselves opening the package yeah. and commenting on what they got. Yeah. And people watch this. I, I'm not quite sure I understand why, but they do. So, yeah, there's a low common denominator on what, on what shows up in, in the uh, millions and billions of things that are uploaded onto YouTube and similar, uh, similar sites. Um, I would like to see people take a little more sense of responsibility and, and not put something up just because you thought of it that afternoon. Who are their role models in this digital space? Because the people that I would consider to be appropriate custodians of magic history and of you know being role models for diplomatic magic judiciation are not on the internet. <laughs> well, I think they're on the internet, but I don't think they're posting videos to YouTube. That's what I'm saying. Why yeah. aren't they? Well, why aren't um, they leading by example rather than standing back and frowning and going? Well, I think I, I, I can see, speak for myself mm-hmm. uh, in that I don't upload videos to YouTube 
But I have uh, just in the past year or two started dipping my toe into the water of of streaming video. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a video that is available through Dan and Dave. Yes, you do. Uh, because they came to me, they including you, and said, we have this... You have the seven-sided logo, yeah, uh, which has seven kind of key words about magic, and one of them is mentalism. And you have almost no mentalism no, on, on, on the site. <laughs> so, so you guys came to me and said, we want some mentalism on the site. And I said, okay. And I thought to myself, what would be an interesting piece to use as a sort of entry point? Yes. Uh, it was very deliberate. The, the, the piece that I decided to record for you is called In Case of ESP. Uh, I'm not plugging it, but uh, but the idea was to pick a, a routine that is technically very easy to do, mm-hmm. but that allowed me to discuss more than just here's how it's done, but to discuss not only some historical background, but also some issues of how do you think about mentalism when you're preparing to do mentalism? What are some some approaches uh, that, that could be useful in the future in terms of how you approach mentalism. Uh, so I did that. It, it was well received. And then I did a couple of pieces uh, for, for Penguin, which uh, uh, a couple of them have been released and, and the reactions overall have been pretty, pretty good uh, to those. So I'm sort of, now these are not free, but, but they're also not ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so I'm, trying to walk the walk and not merely talk the talk. What I've done on these various pieces uh, is I, I do discuss history, yeah. background, and I try to add more than simply, here's how it works. You do this, you do this, you move your little finger, and then this is accomplished. Uh, so I'm trying to, as best I can, I'm trying to lead by example. Yeah. Uh, and, and at least to judge from some of the comments online, at least some people seem to recognize that. that there have been people in the comments that inevitably ensue on these things. There are people who say, and he talks so much about context and where it comes from and, and other issues other than just how to, how to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a set of uh, DVDs that are coming out uh, any moment now. <laughs> Supposedly they're in the factory at this, at this instant. Oh, uh, wow. This is a, a set of four DVDs uh, being released by EMC, which is Luis Tomatos' uh, company, uh, that we actually recorded um, just over a year ago. Uh, but it's taken a year to do the editing and the subtitling and, and the title cards and all of that stuff. So we, we took our time. But they're now, they are now done other than physically existing. And, I, and I, as I say, I think they're literally at the factory now being being physically made. Um, and again, on this, on these DVDs, uh, first of all, it's not only tricks, uh, very deliberately, uh, it's 10 hours of stuff on, on these four DVDs. And there are some very, I think some very good tricks, uh, including some things that I've held back for my own use in some cases for as much as 40 years, some stuff that I've never discussed with even my closest friends. Um, but in addition to that, I've tried to give extensive historical information. Uh, there are interview segments on each of the four discs uh, where Luis Tomatos interviews me uh, about my 
background, my history, how I got involved with this stuff, mm-hmm. some of the stuff I learned along the way. Uh, and there's there's stuff on there that is not trick oriented at all. There, there's a, there's a 25-minute essay, uh, which I narrate, uh, about magic and philosophy. Uh, I'll leave it to other people to decide if that's good or not, but... <laughs> But the one thing you, the one thing you have to say, even if you decide you hate it, is okay. This isn't recycling what's on every other DVD. This isn't typical. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, so I'm trying to address these these forms mm-hmm. uh, in ways that are not simply recycling. Yeah, I think that's beautiful, and I think that's exactly how this ought to start going. I think that that it has to. Because uh, I, I was talking with Will Houston about this, I believe, is that humans have been learning from literature since they could write. Yeah. We've only really been learning from video for, you know, a few decades. Yep. In the scheme of things, practically no time. And so the way that the internet is interfacing with our lives and with our educations still so new we're still figuring it out we are and i think i think what you're talking about is sort of the the next step in this progression of well sharing yeah i mean obviously because it is so new we don't fully understand what it does yet or how it you know how can it best be used Mm -hmm. uh from my perspective I, I, and, and maybe this is just me being an old fogey, but I don't, I don't think it is, or at least I don't think it's only that. <laughs> uh, I still think that, that reading is a better interface mm-hmm. for learning magic than video. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are some things that are better learned from video, particularly mm-hmm. when they involve timing, uh, because that's very hard to describe in, in print. Uh, but the way you take information in, through the written page rather than through a video is different and I think in most cases better. Mm -hmm. And I'm so tired of hearing people say, well, I don't, I'm not a reader. I I learn better from from video. Well, no, I mean, video's there. So you have that opportunity to say that. Mm -hmm. You know, 40 years ago, you didn't have the opportunity to say that. Would you have then said, I'm not much of a reader? Probably not, because you didn't have the option. Uh, video encourages, in some cases, very bad habits mm-hmm. uh, in a way that print does not. Uh, I'm not against video, quite obviously. I, I, I do them. I did my first set of videos in 1997. And that was after having turned it down for, for the better part of a decade. Mm-hmm. I, I had video producers in Magic asking me to do videos for years. And, and I kept saying no. Uh, and I finally said yes, but when I said yes, it was because I thought of ways in which I felt that video could be used as a deliberate medium mm-hmm. and not simply to fill up space. And when the first set of videos, the video mindset, uh, when 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 they when they sold well, uh, Louis Falanga, who was who had produced them for L and L, when they sold well, he said, "Great, when are you going to do your next set of videos?" And I said. Uh, I'll do them when I have something to say that specifically uses the medium. And it took nine years, I think it was, something like that, until I finally came up with some ideas that I felt loaned themselves to the video 
format. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things I did uh, in the second round of, of videotapes was, was uh, not videotapes actually, but then we were only doing DVDs, but was uh, a, a DVD called Nothing. Mm-hmm. And on, uh, not, the idea with Nothing had multiple ideas. Part of it was just a challenge to myself because the idea was to put together a full show, 50 odd minutes, uh, where all the props were purchased for less than $10 in a convenience store. And I ruled out a lot of things that, mm-hmm. that, that I decided you're not allowed to use pre-show. You're not allowed to use this or that just to make it more heavy in- constraints. Yeah. Just, yeah. just to make it more, more challenging for me and more interesting for me. Uh, but the real breakthrough on it and the real reason I chose to do it was not that it was, uh, if those were kind of fun for me, at least conditions, but it was really for the sake of the, of the director's commentary, uh, which I suppose there are people who don't even know about. But at the very end of uh, nothing is a, is a two DVD set. And at the very end of the uh, second DVD, the first DVD has the show and an interview. And then the second DVD has the explanations. And, and the explanations are very dense and very thorough. And at the very end, I do a sort of outro uh, thanking the viewer for having purchased the DVDs and for having invested the time and uh and then i i say oh and by the way uh there's an extra feature which is if you if you once you finish watching the credits for for this uh put the first disc disc back in and on the opening menu there's a button labeled copyright information and it's not copyright information because that's all over this physical set of dvds mm-hmm. if you Click that button, you will see the whole show again, but this time with a voiceover. And it's me doing a, a, a real-time commentary as to what I am doing, what I'm thinking about, what, how I'm handling a, a problem or, or a, a lucky break or whatever. And I thought that was pretty radical mm-hmm. at, at, at its time. Uh, so, so, you know, when, when I do choose to use the video medium, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to do something with it that's hopefully pushing it further than, than, than what's been done before instead of just taking up space. I think that's great. I think that's great. I'm really excited about the Louis D'Amato set. Come on, does it have a name? It's called Kayfabe. Kayfabe, right there. Boom. Yep. Kayfabe. Uh, which, which is a slang term from the world of professional wrestling. Please, you have the floor. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I really like professional wrestling, and I follow it. And people are sometimes very surprised by that. Uh, I was surprised by it. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I watched wrestling when I was a kid, but I didn't watch it religiously. I didn't watch it carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and as I... Hit adulthood, I would occasionally stumble onto a wrestling show on TV, and I might watch for a while. So I was, you know, a little bit aware of it. But I, I discovered at some point in the 1990s, I discovered that I was watching it on purpose. That that instead of flipping channels and saying, "Oh, there's a wrestling show," I'll, I'll watch for a while. I was remembering when it was on oh, and wow. deliberately watching it and and kind of following it. And then I started thinking about that, and it kind of bothered me <laughs> i'm not a sports guy yeah uh and not that wrestling is sports per se uh 
but it's sports oriented. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and I, I said, this is resonating with me in a way that, say, basketball doesn't. Why? And, and, and it kind of bugged me a little bit. And so I put some thought into it. And I, I, I came to realize a few things. I came to realize that wrestling and mentalism are, are remarkably similar. Please. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, they, they both have their modern professional wrestling and modern mentalism. Both have their roots in the American carnival. But that's, that's almost, almost doesn't count toward, toward this discussion. The, the real similarity is uh, the audience for wrestling can be divided into three basic groups. There is a certain percentage of, re- of the wrestling audience that believes that everything is real, right? So if this guy broke his arm, he really did break his arm. That really happened. Mm-hmm. And if this guy is bleeding, that's real blood. He's really bleeding. And if these two wrestlers hate each other, that's not a script. That's not a show. They feel that way even after the cameras are turned off. Mm-hmm. So that's one portion of the audience. Then there's a portion of the audience that believes everything is fake. You know, so he didn't break his arm. He's just holding his arm in a f- funny position and saying he broke it. And he's not bleeding because they, they use blood capsules uh, with fake blood. And the issue of these two guys hating each other is purely scripted. And it was some people sitting in a room figured this out a month ago, and, mm-hmm. and now they're acting it out. But then there's a third group. And the third group is, I believe, the largest of the three groups. And the third group says, okay, I know that some of this is fake, but I don't think the human arm bends that way. I, I think that might actually be a broken arm. And... I know that you can fake, you know, there, there's stage blood you can buy, but I'm not sure how you get that to spurt out of someone's forehead using a blood capsule. And as far as these two guys hating each other, uh, it might be scripted, but I'm not convinced that they're good enough actors to convince me as much as I'm convinced that they seem to really hate each other. So, so the, the, the conclusion that that part of the audience comes to is, I know some of this is real, I know some of this is bullshit and I don't know where to put the marker. <laughs> and that's my audience. That's right. the audience that sees me do mentalism. They're going to make that same statement. Uh, I think, uh, there are some people who are just going to take everything I do and say, yes, he's, he's gifted. And there are others who are going to say, oh, every thing he does was, was purchased at a magic shop and it all involves electronic gizmos or whatever it may. And then there are people who say, okay, I think some of this is real. I think there's some real psychology going on here and some real uh, insight into human behavior that, that, that's valid. And I think some of this is nonsense. And, and, and he's telling us it's one thing, but it's really something else. But I don't know where to put the marker. Mm-hmm. So when I realized that similarity... Uh, I embraced my inner wrestling fan, and I now follow it quite seriously. I, yeah. I, I watch the, the, big, the big promotions I watch regularly, the smaller ones I catch up with to some degree. I subscribe to two weekly newsletters about wrestling that kind of fill in what's going on behind the scenes. And uh, over the past several years, uh, largely through my friend Crow Garrett, who is a magician and a member of the castle, uh, but who's also... Uh, interest in, in, in pro wrestling, uh, I've gotten to meet a number of wrestlers. Uh, uh, usually through the Magic Castle, we, 
we host them at the Magic Castle, and then and some of them are big Magic fans. So uh, so I've gotten more and more involved in wrestling, and and the more I am involved with it. I mean, I certainly don't do it. Let's be clear. But, but <laughs> I thought you were about to give the big reveal. <laughs> no, no. But but involved in the sense of following it, understanding some of the thinking behind it, and and so forth. In that regard, uh, the, the with every passing month, the relationship between mystery entertainment and wrestling entertainment just becomes more entwined. Now, there's a key word in wrestling. Uh, in wrestling slang, and the word is kayfabe. Nobody is sure where it comes from. Uh, I have my own theory, but that's uh, for another podcast, I think. But it means what it means basically is preserving the secret. That if someone keeps pay, uh, keeps kayfabe, uh, then that means they are not revealing the secrets of pro wrestling to lay people. Kayfabe is looser than it used to be. It used to be very intense. There were wrestlers who didn't even tell their their families, their wives and children, that any of this was scripted and and predetermined. Uh, That level of kayfabe is largely gone. But there's still kayfabe. There are still things that are not freely uh, revealed to the general public. And... uh, so it's a great word, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's it's a word that I think has has an obvious uh, uh, place within the world of magic and mentalism. So so the name of the of the set of tapes is kayfabe. Luis likes single word titles, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so if you've seen any of the previous sets he's done, the the, the Paul Daniels set was called Bravura, uh, the uh, Oh, the recent one from uh, uh, Juan Rubiales uh, is uh, is called Ole. So, so each set has a single word that kind of is meant to sum up the the set. And Luis and I have been talking about doing these uh, these DVDs for about seven years since he started. I was one of the first people he asked because we're good friends, and I. Initially, I said, yes, I'd like to do a set, but I, but I don't have a, a sense of it yet. I don't have mm-hmm. a handle. And I don't want to just do a greatest hits package or or a uh, uh, just throw together a bunch of good material. I want there to be some sort of larger concept. Yeah. Uh, so I've been working on that off and on for quite some time. And every once in a while, Luis would come up with, sometimes he'd come up with an idea uh, as to uh, a premise uh, which he had some very interesting ideas, but they were never quite what I wanted to do. But also occasionally he'd come up with a word, you know, what if we called the set? Ah, and he'd, he'd toss out the word and none of them quite worked for me. Uh, and that's not a lacking on Luis's part. It's just, I wanted something that I really felt worked on a personal level for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at one point, two, three years ago, I guess, uh, we were talking, we were probably having a meal somewhere in the world. And the conversation somehow steered toward wrestling. <laughs> and I told him about this word kayfabe. And he said, we have our title. We may not know what the contents are going to be yet, but there's a title. Uh, and yeah, it's never been used in a, in a magic context. And uh, so that's the title of the set. It's going to be called kayfabe. That's very cool. So how is how is wrestling still informing your interaction with 
conjuring. I'm not sure at this point it informs it so much as it accompanies it. Mm. Uh, I love watching watching it when, when it's well done, and I particularly like, like watching uh, the people who are good at doing what in wrestling are referred to as promos, uh, which is to say uh, that's the talking stuff. Mm-hmm. That's when someone addresses the crowd or in some cases addresses the camera or addresses another wrestler and and you know forwards a storyline by by what they say and how they say it and and some of these people are extraordinarily good uh i have seen you know these days the the bigger promotions i mean the biggest one is wwe and they are they customarily their their small shows are going to be for audiences of six to ten thousand people and their their slightly larger shows, the ones that are broadcast, tend to hit between more like ten to fifteen thousand people, and then some of their pay per views are are in the tens of thousands. Those are big audiences, mm-hmm. and I have seen uh, some of the more gifted promo people walk out, work to an audience of let's say sixteen thousand people, and steer them with amazing skill and efficiency. So someone walks out. And maybe has a point of view that the audience isn't buying into, and they turn them in a matter of moments. Wow. Uh, the the biggest name in in actively in wrestling right now is a guy named John Cena, mm-hmm. and Cena is a very mixed uh, character. One one of the attributes of current pro wrestling is uh, it used to be very clear cut: good guys and bad guys, you know, or or as in wrestling parlance, baby faces and heels. And so Cena, in years gone by, would have been positioned purely as a babyface. And, and as a face, he was good and noble, and everything he did would have the crowd support. And his enemies, the heels, the bad guys, would get booed because they were low-down scoundrels. Yeah. Um, but things have changed. And so now Cena gets a very mixed reaction. It gets a huge reaction. But half the people are yelling how much they hate him, while the other half are yelling how much they support him. And uh, it's, a, it's a strange position to be in and one that is relatively new to the world of wrestling. And Cena, uh, therefore, does not automatically have the crowd on his side mm-hmm. when he cuts a promo, when, when he talks. And I've seen him walk out to a very large audience, which on, on a given night, might the majority might be hostile. Mm-hmm. And he turns them in a matter of a minute or so wow. into being on his side. It's masterful. Uh, and, and he is by no means uh, uh, unique at that. Nor I, I, mean, I think he's one of the best promos. I don't think he's the best. There's a guy named Paul Heyman, who, who is a manager rather than a wrestler, uh, who is sensational at, at, uh, at steering an audience and at, at making all the points he wants to make suddenly become the important points for the audience. And, and these guys are, are so skilled at telling a story, uh, at moving an audience, at getting them angry in the ways they want them to be angry, happy in the ways they want them to be happy. Uh, and, and they're just really good at doing this. Uh, and and it's, it's a remarkable thing to see. And if, 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 if only in terms of that, it, it's worth taking a look at wrestling. Uh, even even if the listener has no interest in watching 
guys in spandex <laughs> jumping around and beating each other up. Uh, the promos are worth are worth catching. Uh, as good as as there are stand up comedians who are remarkably skilled at, at pulling the audience into a, a place that the audience may not have expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but some of these wrestling talkers are every bit as good, if not better. Uh, so it's less for me, I would say it's less at this point about learning only because I've been learning my own version of stuff for so long. Yeah. But it's more about just appreciating God, that was good. Yeah. That boy, that was efficient. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see, you know, and I, I, I mean, I've done it in my own context, yeah. you know, uh, people were at the last FISM, which was two years ago in Rimini, Italy. Uh, the audience was very negative. Uh, someone, someone described them, I think accurately as being a soccer audience, ah. a European football audience in that they were very quick to approve so there were lots of standing ovations and cheers, but they were also really quick to disapprove. And if the slightest thing went wrong, or they'd start whistling, which is the European equivalent of booing. Mm-hmm. And it happened very uh, fast. And it, it was a problematic fism. It, there were plenty of things wrong with it. There were plenty of things that were not well thought out or badly planned. And there were also things that went wrong just out of sheer bad luck. But there were also some really great things. It was an incredibly good lineup of talent overall. Uh, a lot of extra features, things like interviews and, and uh, other events that were, were not typical. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the audience wound up being very quick to, to move to a negative vantage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the last day, they were hostile and uh and i wound up emceeing the uh the penultimate show which was the show where where the the top point getters in every category of the contest did their acts again Mm -hmm. so that not only could everybody see including people who hadn't been at the contest on that time itself but also the judges could could watch them again and make a decision as to whether to go to as, as to who to give the, the Grand Prix to if they were going to do that. Okay. And so I wound up hosting that show and I walked out on stage to a very hostile audience of, <laughs> of, of, uh, of something like 1,500 people. It was a good-sized uh, group. And they were hostile. They weren't personally hostile to me, uh, I'm happy to say. Uh, but they were hostile. Uh, they were in a bad mood. They were waiting for things to complain about and I, before starting the show, I talked to them for uh, five minutes or something, maybe less. And I began to turn them uh, and then continued to do so during the course of the show until finally late in the show, uh, I, I got them to give a standing ovation to, the, to Walter Rolfo, the guy who produced the convention, who, who many of them were ready to, to kill. Uh, and I did this... It, it, deliberately, uh, and there were a lot of people afterwards who said, "I can't believe you did that. That was an ama- That was magic in and of itself. It was amazing." And I thought to myself, "Well, yeah, but I had the luxury of doing it over the course of an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, the, the the biggest part of it was in that first several minutes, but but 
I had a little more luxury. These guys who walk out and do it in a matter of two minutes in front of a wrestling audience, they're more impressive than I am. But, uh, but I felt somehow kindred. That's really in, in that cool. Regard. That's amazing. I'm f- I'm totally intrigued. I'm definitely gonna look up some promos and check them out. I'm sure they're all over YouTube. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm sure they're all over YouTube because uh, there's wrestling all over YouTube. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you would specifically look for. Uh, I wonder if there's just like what a the keyword would promo be promo compilation. Promo, maybe. promo might be one of the keywords to to look for. Uh, there are other phrases that are used. Sometimes uh, a person doing a promo, it's referred to someone being good on the stick, the stick in this case being a microphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that would be in the, the title of a, of a YouTube uh, posting. Yeah. Um, hmm. They're sometimes simply referred to as interviews, even though frequently there's no one interviewing. It's just one guy standing talking, but they're still sometimes called interviews. Um, but I'm sure it's all out there. I'm sure a lot of it is. And, and it's, uh, some of them are, are people who currently work. I mentioned John Cena. I mentioned Paul Heyman. Mm-hmm. There are some great, great interviews, great promos from years gone by. One of the great uh, uh, characters in all of wrestling just died uh, a couple of days ago. A guy named Bobby Heenan, who was uh, sometimes referred to as Bobby the Brain Heenan and sometimes referred to as Bobby the Weasel Heenan. And he was one of the great comedic villains uh, he, he early in his career, he, he actually wrestled, but then mm-hmm. he became a manager, which is to say he would come out and do the, do the talking usually for, for wrestlers who, who were not that good at talking. So he would front for them in a sense. And he was terrific at riling up a crowd. Uh, he, he knew how to be really funny and yet he could steer an audience. It wasn't only going for the jokes and mm-hmm. he was really good. If you could break down what the process of it is into just very basic, because I'm just trying to understand, like, if you come out to a rowdy crowd, yeah. how, what is the process? Well, just very basic. That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure there's one answer. I think different people have different ways mm-hmm. uh, of doing that. I mean, part of it is a, a significant part of it is the attitude the performer has. You know, if I walk out on a stage to a, a a, a potentially negative audience, a rowdy audience, then part of what's going to get me over is, is my innate confidence mm-hmm. that I know what I'm about to do has value. And I have no doubt about that. And that kind of indicates to the audience, well, maybe we should give, give a chance to check this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is not to let the audience's reaction throw me off my game. Yeah. People sometimes ask me, what's, what's the hardest show you ever did? And I don't know if it's the one that always comes to mind, uh, and in, certainly in some ways was the hardest show I ever did, was back around 1980, I want to say. Uh, there used to be a thing in Chicago, I think a version of it still exists, called Chicago Fest. Mm-hmm. And it was a summer festival with lots of free shows in different venues by, uh, by, the, by the, uh, the waterside. And uh, so venues of very different sizes, uh, little nightclub type venues, bigger venues. And I was booked to do uh, a 45 minute show twice, mm-hmm. uh, alternating with Harry Blackstone Jr. So I did a show, he did a show, I did a show, he did a show with space in between. And this was in a huge hall at Navy Pier, which had 5,000 seats. And it was, 
bad conditions. The, 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 this hall had a very high ceiling, which always makes it harder because it's, it's, you can't get any intimacy yeah. to whatever extent you can get intimacy with 5,000 people. The high ceiling kind of diffuses a lot of the energy rather than focusing it. Mm -hmm. There were these high windows which were letting in daylight because mm. the, the first show was early evening, so it was still light outside. It was swelteringly hot. And I'm in a three-piece suit, and I'm just dripping. <laughs> uh, but I got through the first show, and it was all right. It was, I won't say it was a great show, but it was a solid, solidly good performance. I was, I was not unhappy with it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in between my first show and my second show, uh, a little down the way, there was some sort of a stadium that sat 9,000 people. And there was a Charlie Daniels concert, you know, kind of hardcore country music with you know good old boy kind of yeah, country okay. music and it was free wow. so far more than nine thousand people showed up uh -huh. and and so a lot of them got turned away and they didn't want to waste the drugs and liquor that they'd already consumed <laughs> uh so some of them said well it's a free mind reading show so they came into uh to, to the navy pier so I don't know how many people total were in the crowd. I don't think it was 5,000. I think it was probably closer to 3,000. But it was a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was still hot. I remember I actually, for the second show, I put a washcloth in my pocket rather than a handkerchief because I knew how much I was going to sweat. Uh, and in those days, my opening routine involved a woman at her seat and me with some uh, oversized ESP cards. And it was a, a, a game where if I didn't manage to match her choice through a psychological influence, I would pay her $50. Sure. Uh, and it was a good, solid opener that I'd been using for several years at that point. And I get to the ending where I, I win, I get to keep the money. And a thousand people, a thousand Charlie Daniels fans react to this by saying, he didn't let her keep the money. That bastard. And they started booing. And of course, this spread. Yeah. So it wasn't the entire audience booing, but it was probably 1,500 people booing or something. I mean, that's a lot of people booing. That's loud. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember standing on that stage, dripping with sweat, which was now not only sweat from the heat, but also what in show business is referred to as flop sweat. Because you, know, you have 1,500 hillbillies booing. <laughs> and, and all I can think of is I have about 41 minutes before I can leave this stage. And it was a wide stage. I remember the wings weren't anywhere near. So, I mean, it was just I was there alone with nowhere to go. Wow. And it was a pretty terrifying feeling. Uh, but I persevered. And I turned them. How? <laughs> uh, by being good at what I do mm -hmm. and by having authority and having confidence that what I was doing had value. And it didn't happen immediately. It mm -hmm. took, I think it took at least 20 minutes uh, for it to really begin to noticeably turn. But by the end, by the, by, by the end of the 45 minutes, I absolutely had them. And the way I knew that was that I was closing with a piece I remember I'm, I'm reconstructing this from 30 years ago or so, but, but 
I was closing with a piece that involved my concentrating on something that a, a member of the audience was thinking of mm. in silence for the better part of a minute. And it was, you could hear a pin drop. So that was proof that I had them. Mm -hmm. There were no cat calls. There were no coughing. I don't know if you know that. I do. With an audience. If, if the audience starts coughing, that's, if one person coughs, that just means they may have a cold or be allergic to something. But if, if coughing starts happening around the room, that's an indication that you're losing their attention. Yes. That's, that's a, an old truism in show business. They, there wasn't any coughing. They weren't, they were into it. Absolutely. And when I got that final thing right there were you know genuinely exuberant uh, responses so that so the act finished great and that was a very value, valuable experience for me uh because it let me know that that i could do something like that i remember not too long after that experience uh within a few months of that i had a gig for about a thousand high school students in in casper wyoming and it was at some it wasn't a prom, but it was something akin to that. I mean, it was a, a dance, basically, uh, uh, for high school students, for like a thousand of them. And they didn't know I was on the bill. They thought they were coming for an evening of dancing. And then at a certain point, the, I don't know, the head of school activities Studio, or something got up and got up and said, and now we're going to stop the music. And they all went, what? And, and he said, we're going to stop the music because we're going to have a wonderful performance by this, this mind reader, Max Man. And they were really annoyed because <laughs> they didn't know this was coming. And it was like, I was just getting close to this other person. And, you know, it was, it was sort of like this mind reader is cock blocking you know, exactly. or, or, or whatever. Uh, so I walked out to this very hostile group of, of high school students. And I very clearly remember thinking to myself, I'm not afraid of you guys. I survived the Navy Pier. <laughs> I survived the Charlie Daniels rejects. So you guys are going to have a piece of cake. Yeah. And, and in fact, I turned them. So that was a really valuable experience for me mm -hmm. uh, in learning how to do that. Uh, and again, it's not that there was a specific technique. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there is one, but I don't know it. Mm -hmm. It's really just a question of force of will, of, of, of just having that that attitude based on a genuine belief of i belong here and your attention belongs on me and uh and that's gotten me through a lot of difficult moments you know most of the shows i do uh, in many cases the audience knows who i am at the outset and they've come to see me mm -hmm. that's different but i've done plenty of shows where the audience has no idea who i am and what i'm about to do and and, and why should they invest their time yeah and, and so I need to convey to them fairly quickly and efficiently without, I mean, I can't spell out the, the entire forthcoming hour and 15 minutes or however long the show is, but, mm -hmm. I, but I can give them a sense of, I should, okay, I should check this out. I, I, I should, this might be worth investing in. And, and, and so that, you know, we've sort of gotten far afield, but <laughs> there you are. Well, I think that comes back to the sort of magicians being afraid of magic things because you're able to read the audience yeah. and you're in tune with them and that's important. But uh, you said, I, you know, your attention belongs to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of magicians, when the moment of astonishment occurs and the mystery envelops the audience, yeah. 
they feel like they've now lost the attention because people go inward and they go, oh my God, or they turn to their friend and they go, oh my God. Yeah. And yeah. that is what is, you know, so frightening for them is they've lost, right. Right. quote unquote, control of the audience. But I'm not sure they have. I mean, I understand, oh, yes. I, I understand I, what you're saying. I agree. They haven't. But, you know, you go to see a great uh, uh, musician, let's yeah, say. Yeah. And there are moments when you're watching a live concert that are transcendent. Yes. But you never forget who, who provided that for you. Yeah. And, and I'm exactly with you. And that's what I mean is these, I would say, weaker magicians are the ones that... Well, are afraid of. Well, and I think partly that may be because they they realize deep down that they're that they are not responsible for it. Mm. They're using someone else's invention mm. with someone else's lines. Yes, someone else's presentation, and therefore it isn't about them. I, I think we touched upon the mass magician earlier. When the mass magician surfaced, uh, a lot of magicians went crazy, and then they. You know, we're ruined. Uh, and I, I, I don't like exposure uh, mm -hmm. because I think, mostly because I think it's rude. Uh, the people who expose magic gratuitously, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on a TV special or wherever it may be, mm -hmm. first of all, it's not their material to expose. They usually don't know or, or care where it came from. Uh, and they don't know if it has ramifications. Now, I, in fact, think most exposure doesn't really uh, generate much harm. But the people who do it don't know that. Mm -hmm. You know, Bruce Elliott writing The Phoenix uh, back in 1950-ish, there used to be a magazine in the United States called Coronet, which was a digest-sized magazine. So the same size as Reader's Digest or Linking Ring. Uh, <laughs> And it was a very popular magazine. It was on newsstands all over the place. And it was a general interest magazine. And Coronet ran an article exposing half a dozen pieces of magic. And these were not, you know, pulling your thumb off. These were real, I don't remember what they were, but they were real tricks. I mean, yeah. things that people were actually using. And, and magicians freaked out, as they always do. And Bruce Elliott's comment was, the public's memory on this lasts as long as it takes to read the stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the average person doesn't really care how magic tricks work, and it may be a momentary titillation for them to, to get a glimpse in on the secrets, but then they kind of go on with their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, but magicians react as if this is the end, of, the end of everything. And I think the reason for that is because for most magicians, and this is kind of going to come off sounding very harsh and judgmental, uh, so just deal with it. Um, but I think most magicians, particularly those who are not doing it as a profession, uh, realize that the only thing that separates them from the lay people is the possession of some technological information. So the only difference between the, the magic hobbyist and the non-magician is that the hobbyist knows the, the, the cup has a magnet in it. Mm -hmm. And if you share that information with the non-magician, now they're relegated to equal status. Well, I think most good magicians, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that being a professional magician is the difference between being good or bad, because there yes. are plenty of bad professional magicians and plenty of good amateurs, but uh, just in, in very general terms, most good magicians realize that the secret is important, but it's only one important thing among, among many. Uh, and the technical secret 
you know, is is in some ways as as important as understanding how the interior of a of a car engine works. You know, mm-hmm. for some people that's their lives is repairing car engines, but for most people. They don't want to know much beyond, I turn this key, the engine revs, I drive. I'm picking a bad example because I don't drive. But, <laughs> but uh, so I don't, again, I'm not, I'm not uh, in, endorsing exposure because I, I think, it, as I say, I think it's rude. But I don't think in the lar- larger picture, it, it really hurts much mm-hmm. uh, in, in the way that mag- many magicians think it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's because I think what what separates me from non magicians is a lot more than simply knowing some technical secrets. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about character development, but in particular, again, it goes back to this audience management. I don't know. I saw you look. I don't know if you could read what I scribbled, but it's boo. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, and that that is something you know. That is the example of something a lot of magic performers have never even thought of doing, which is addressing the audience's immediate perception of you. Right. Um, for those who don't know, because I, uh, I don't do it in every show and, and, and I almost never do it on, on television. So many people have not seen this, but, but in a lot of my performing, uh, I'm introduced, I walk out usually in a, in a narrowed down, uh, follow spot with no other lighting, so it's very intense. And I, I'm usually wearing sunglasses, which I take off, revealing that I've got very heavy eye makeup, and I cock my eyebrow, and the audience kind of isn't sure how to take this moment. Uh, and and then I lean into the microphone, and, and softly I say, boo. And there's this huge release at that moment uh, where the audience which may have, as a first reaction, have said, oh, my God, this guy's so weird. Do I want to spend the next hour with him? Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that one syllable, what I'm saying to them is they they interpret that moment as being, okay, wait a minute. He knows. Yes. That he's that he looks weird. He knows that I'm, I'm uncomfortable and he's able to be to find some humor in that. So maybe this might be worth staying around for. Yes. Uh, so that's a really useful opening. It took me five years to write that line. I, 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 I absolutely believe yeah. it because it's... It took me five years to write it. Uh, I still use it, although I don't use it in every show. In part, it doesn't work without a microphone. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You need the... Not just the amplification, but also the formality of the microphone makes the line work. And if I've, I've, I've tried it over the years. If I don't have a mic, I don't use that to open. It doesn't work. Hmm. Um, but it is an opening that I've used for, for many, many years. And, uh, yeah, it solves a lot of, a lot of issues, doesn't it? Because um, it's all about developing the relationship with the audience. Yes. And that... You know, people tend to make up their minds about other people in in less than a minute. Yeah. You know, first five, ten seconds, uh, a lot of the decision is is made as to whether they like this person, dislike this person, are interested in this person, want to get away from this person. All these different things, and it's it's not really. I won't say it's impossible, but it's really difficult 
to tell them everything they need to know in a matter of moments. Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, you can tell them a lot. Uh, there's a, a, an incredible moment. There was a movie that came out a few years ago, uh, and I'm blanking on the name, but you're going to help me on this. Uh, it was about a, 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 a music student playing drums. Oh, Whiplash. That's the one. Uh, Whiplash. And the opening scene of this movie, J.K. Simmons, who deservedly won an Oscar yes. for this, J.K. Simmons walks in on this kid who's playing the drums. And that opening exchange is, is a couple of minutes long. And you feel like you've just read a 200-page biography. Yeah. You learn so much about that character. And Simmons, who I think is a terrific actor, but he's done lots of different roles. He's not one of these actors who always plays a variation on the same person. Mm -hmm. uh, but for this part, my God, he's, it, it, it's, it's astonishing how densely packed that first couple of minutes of exchange is and yeah. how much you know at, 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 the, at the end of that. It, it takes your breath away. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've seen good stage performers, magicians or singers or comedians or what have you, who've managed similar things in, in similarly tight and efficient ways. And it, it can be pretty exciting to see. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, it's, 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 I mean, the thing is, like, you don't have to be good at it. You just have to be aware of it. And you will automatically become better at it. And that, I would say that yeah, is true it, it's, of it's, most it's, things. It's sort of built in. But see, it's not built in. Most magic does not have that issue built into it. Uh, what a lot of magic has, okay, uh, this will sound like a weird digression, but it, it's not really. The easiest type of magic to do well, I maintain, is manipulation, mm -hmm. which most magicians would say, well, that's the hardest because mm -hmm. you have to practice. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, but the thing is that doing manip, whether it's, you know, billiard balls or split fans and playing cards mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, as you practice... The very technical demands of learning how to, to accomplish it have a lot of stagecraft built into it. Mm -hmm. So that just by the time you've practiced it enough to do it well, where you don't drop the stuff on the floor and you don't turn it at an awkward angle or what have you, you're pretty far along in the presentational end of things because that comes along automatically with it. Yeah. Whereas other types of magic, such as mentalism, such as stand-up comedy magic, where you're talking, uh, illusion magic, and so forth, it's not built in in the same way. And so uh, that's why I think those are, in essence, harder mm -hmm. uh, because because they don't they don't come they don't come with the learning built into the the practice. Mm -hmm. You know, I think mentalism is the second most difficult form of magic to do well. What's the first? Big illusions. Okay. The reason big illusions are so difficult to do well is because in, in the case of most big illusions, uh, uh, there are exceptions, but in the case of most of them, uh, it's very clear to the audience, whether consciously or on a gut level, it's very clear that the primary source of the magic is the box yes. or the prop. And the secondary source of the magic is the assistant or assistants. So the magician is at best the tertiary source of the magic, 
So the great challenge with big illusions is for the for the magician to somehow convince the audience, in spite of the obvious evidence to the contrary, that if he or she were to leave the stage, nothing would work. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard story to sell. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it. I've, I've seen some great illusionists uh, who managed to make that feel feel true. Uh, but it isn't baked in. It's not. It's not. It doesn't come with the prop. Mm-hmm. And then mentalism uh, would be the second hardest because I think so. Well, because with mentalism, you don't. Uh, you, uh, mentalism doesn't have a prop, right? I mean, most mentalism uses props that are so minimal that they're often just forgotten, you know, pieces of paper, deck of cards, uh, a list of something. I mean, really pretty, pretty basic, uh, stationary supplies. Uh, and, and the performer is meant to get something out of that and to, to get it to go somewhere and to mean something, uh, to the audience. And of course, most mentalists fail completely mm-hmm. on that. Uh, as I think most, Illusionists fail. You know, I don't think this is unique to mentalism. Sure. Uh, I just think that, that again, something like manipulation, it's baked in that there's going to be some presentation, whether the person intends it or not, some presentation is going to come along with the rote learning of the technical means by which the the act is accomplished. Mm Mm-hmm. And with mentalism, there's almost nothing, there's no guidance. There's no constraint. Yeah. Almost. You know, you have endless, apparently endless possibilities. Yeah. That, you know, it, it, it's harder to wrap the audience into it so that they can kind of understand well, the Well, I mean, the it. biggest, I think, speaking in very general terms, the biggest problem with most mentalism, and for that matter, most magic, is that it is completely self-referential. It is only about itself. Mm-hmm. It is a demonstration of a proclaimed skill or ability and nothing more than that. And, you know, that, that basically that's the definition of juggling. Mm-hmm. And juggling is great. I really like juggling. But there's a reason why most juggling acts are seven minutes long. Because seven minutes seems to be about the length of time through which that story is interesting. Mm-hmm. The story of, hey, look what I can do. Yeah. You know, uh, but of course, most stand-up magicians, talking magicians or mentalists, rarely do seven minutes. Right? They're much more likely to do twenty minutes or forty minutes or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the story is kind of done at the seven-minute mark. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, what What do you want your audience to feel? Because, you know, if it's not about being self-referential, what is it about? Well, for you personally. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Well, you say for me personally, but I don't think this is noticeably different from how it is for other other artists. I'm using a different medium for expressing my ideas than a painter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or uh, a singer, but I think my goal is, is similar, which is I would like my audience to leave my show seeing the world just a little bit differently than when they, when they walked in. Uh, 
I'm not expecting or aiming for a huge catharsis that changes their lives indelibly. I'm, I'm willing to, to go for a much, much more modest goal, but I just want them to feel changed, mm-hmm. that, that they see things a little bit differently, because that's what I want to get out of any artistic experience I have, whether it's seeing a remarkable painting or a really uh, inspiring photograph or a play or listening to a, a piece of music. I want, I want to be changed. Yeah. I want to uh, look at the world differently. And so, you know, it took me decades to come up with a working uh, definition of magic. And uh, I managed to get one, which I'm not completely satisfied with, but it's the closest thing I've gotten to one that I'm okay with, which is that magic is the aesthetic exploration of mystery. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty cool thing. And uh, all the more so now, I think mystery is, is an increasingly uh, diminished element in our lives mm-hmm. because we are, as human beings, very good at assimilating mystery. Uh, you know, I remember when fax machines first showed up and they were astonishing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could draw a sketch, stick it in the fax machine, someone thousands of miles away within a matter of a minute or so had a facsimile of, of that sketch. I didn't Wait, have... hold on. Is that where the word fax comes from? Yes. Holy shit. This <laughs> blew my mind. Okay. Okay, sorry. I didn't but, interrupt. <laughs> but the bottom line is, you know, if... If I wanted to get that sketch to someone in, in Europe prior to fax machines, I would have had to have put the sketch into a, an envelope, handed the envelope. The fastest way I could have done it mm-hmm. would be to pay a lot of money to put it in an envelope, have someone fly to Europe, get to that other person's office and hand it to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're looking at 10, 12 hours mm-hmm. and a lot of money and a lot of effort. And now suddenly comes this device where I can do it literally in a minute or two. That's amazing. And how long did it take for that to feel not only ordinary, but outdated? Mm-hmm. I mean, now fax machines, I own a fax machine. It's a paperweight. I never use it. Uh, you know, it, it's only one color <laughs> and it takes a whole minute to, for, for the image to go through. I mean, we, we assimilate, we get used to, th- to you know, te- technological miracles become everyday things with remarkable speed. So mystery, although technically omnipresent in our lives, mm-hmm. we're mostly not aware of. You know, the, by the time we really absorb how amazing something is, we're used to it. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for the next fix, the next new, new mystery. Mm-hmm. The next so, Apple event. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, you're carrying a, a, a cell phone around that is exponentially more advanced than all of the computers that were used to send the first people to the moon. Mm-hmm. And you, you put it in your pocket and you, you don't think about how amazing it is. You think about, oh, I'm not getting a good signal here. You know, it's taking too long to download. I think my partner's mad at me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So so I think that... that in the specific case of magic, mm-hmm. we have this wonderful uh, 
opportunity in our work to reintroduce audiences to mystery, to the whole concept of mystery, which is in increasingly lacking in our lives. And as magicians or mentalists or mystery performers, however you want to phrase it, mm -hmm. we get to turn that around and say, no, wait a minute. How does this work? How could this be? What's the deal here? Mm -hmm. And that's something profound and beautiful. If that's the subtext, yeah. what is your... What's the overt for the audience? What is it that they are experiencing that you feel leads them into this sort of awakening or okay. observance of the aesthetic? Well, I don't know that it's a... I mean, sometimes it's the actual text. Mm -hmm. It depends on which material I'm doing. But I have material that does overtly speak to these ideas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but not, not all of it. Uh, Can I get you some water? No, I'm good. Uh, the... the I mean, the overt thing is the audience has an opportunity to spend time with a, uh, an unusual guy. Yes. Who isn't part of their normal day-to-day -day experience. Mm. I mean, that's the starting point, mm. right? Uh, and then as they get to know me in the course of a performance, they begin to understand ways in which, paradoxically, I am far more different than them than they assumed. But in some ways, I'm far more like them than they assumed and that nothing is quite as it seemed. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. I think. I like that. I think that's beautiful. It's a, it's a direct challenge to perception on multiple layers. Yeah, but it's not a challenge. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't like the word challenge. I get what yeah. you're saying. And I, but the problem with the word challenge is that it almost guarantees, uh, that the relationship becomes adversarial. Yes, I didn't and mean I that don't at want all. It, and I don't want that. So, so, but it, but it does absolutely put into question people's assumptions. Yes, yeah. It's an examination on perception yeah. on multiple levels, yeah. which I think is really neat. <laughs> and I don't mean that to sound trivial. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, that's cool. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what it is that I want to say. I haven't performed. In a long time, mm -hmm. and I would I'm good in front of an, an audience, but I don't know what I want to say or how I want to say it, or you know I'm not quite sure. I know kind of what I want people to feel. I just mm -hmm. am not sure yet how to to do that the way that I would find right. it pleasant. Well, part of that I think comes down to Max Maven's three questions. Uh, I have these TM. three. What? TM. Yeah, I have these three questions that I that I always ask when I when I see a performer. Uh, always the same three questions, and these have now sort of circulated. So there are people in other countries who make reference to them. And uh, the questions are these: uh, first, who is this person? Mm -hmm. Second, what story is he or she trying to tell me? Mm -hmm. And third, why is it worth my time and attention? Now, the, the third question, which I've heard other people uh, rephrase as, why should I care? And that's essentially the same question. Um, the answer to the third question is frequently, it isn't. It isn't something I should devote time and attention to. And the reason for that is because the person so often has not answered the first two questions. Mm. Most performers have no clue as to who they are on stage. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, let alone what story they want to tell. 
And when I say story, I'm not talking necessarily a linear story of once upon a time this happened and it gets chronological. I mean, that is a, a presentational choice, but, but I don't mean that by story. Um, and one of the problems that, that I find in magic a lot, and it shows up in other fields, uh, uh, comedy and music, but in magic, a lot of people are uh, simply copying someone else, right? Now, a certain amount of copying is, is sort of par for the course. That's how we as human beings, how we learn mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. You know, probably no one ever sat down and taught you, Elliot, how to use a knife and fork. <laughs> probably you saw your parents or siblings or someone using a knife and fork and said, oh, I kind of can do that. And you copied it and you got it to work. So I'm not a, a, against copying in, in, in the larger sense, but I, but I think when it comes to a performance art that involves expression, copying begins to lose its value and becomes a negative. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier in this conversation, I, I, I made reference to videotape and then I corrected myself, but you're, even you are old enough to remember videotape yes. uh, prior to this digital age. And so you remember that when you had a tape of something, you might have wanted to share it with a friend. So you made it a, a, a copy. Mm -hmm. And you gave that to your friend and the copy had lost a little bit of clarity, right? The colors weren't quite as vibrant. The lines weren't quite as sharp, uh, but it was okay. It was watchable. Mm -hmm. And then your friend made a copy for his friend and that version was a little fuzzier and the colors were a little less clear and the lines were less clear. And, and then if that person, by the time you get to the fourth or fifth copy, it was mostly snow. Yeah. You know, it was the vague sense of a person on, on camera, but you couldn't really make out much detail. Uh, and that's what I feel like when I watch a lot of magicians and mentalists. I'm looking at a third or fourth generation video copy, mm -hmm. tape copy, that has just lost clarity. And so I'm not watching anything with clarity and it's not coming from the, they're not the source of it anyway. All right. So it's it's just sort of a very fuzzy impression of what may have been a vibrant original and uh and i think that's unfortunate uh to subject an audience to that uh, so so that's my main reason against copying is that it isn't good <laughs> uh taking any ethical or moral considerations away, taking issues of finance and business away, just on the simple basis of what do you want an audience to see and, and, and hear and experience. Copies tend to be less good and therefore why should you su should subject an audience to that? Mm -hmm. Now there's a big difference, as I've said in other occasions, there's a difference between imitation on the one hand, and inspiration mm -hmm. and interpretation. Imitation, I think, is not particularly good. Yes. Because of what I just said, the copying thing. Inspiration is great. Uh, if, if you find something that moves you, either because it makes you laugh or it makes you angry or it makes you feel all soft and gooey or whatever your reaction may be, I think it's great to say, why did that work so well for me? 
and and you may not come up with a good answer, but in looking for an answer, you you, you can find things in yourself. And and similarly, uh, interpretation where you maybe you do find an answer. You say, oh, that I, I understand the technique they used in order to get to that moment. Is there a way I can then take that technique and apply it to something I do rather than simply mimicking what what they did? Maybe I can just take that little element of it, filter it through my own manner, my own style, and come up with something that's mine without ignoring that it was inspired by, <clears throat> you know, you, you follow what I'm saying here. Yes, so, yes, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, my, my feeling against copying is less on the issue of morality Although I think there are moral issues involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, God knows I've seen people using material of mine where I, I kind of roll my eyes and say, I deserve <laughs> some sort of compensation here, whether it's money or applause or something, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so there are moral issues and ethical issues. But, but totally taking that out of the equation, just in terms of what it is you are going to share with your audience, uh, the more I, as your audience, the more I can get that's, that's about you and then by extension about me mm-hmm. as an audience member, uh, that's just a better experience than if I'm watching something that is only superficially you because it's really an imitation of... It's diluted. ...of someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as, as artists, not magicians, as artists, you know... The most beautiful things, and in some people's perspectives, including my, the really the only important thing is self-expression and connection between humans, as mm-hmm. as you know, brothers and sisters. Because <laughs> um, that's, I mean, that's ultimately what it's all about. You know, life sucks and then you die. That's what my dad says. But if we can do our part to eliminate these boundaries amongst people and share this common experience that Mm -hmm. is beautiful and that is authentic, Mm -hmm. then that's really important. On the other hand, as a beginner who doesn't know anything, like you were saying, I had to learn how to use a knife and a fork. You have to try on your influences so that you know what you do like and what you don't like and what works and what doesn't work. Of course. And internalize. Of course. But hopefully you don't take that as your end point. Exactly. You don't say, well, I'm going to become a, a David Blaine clone, yeah, or you know, fill in the the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you say no. What is it about that performer who whose work? What is about what is about what he is doing that speaks to me? And how can I translate it into me speaking to someone else? Mm-hmm. What are the universal truths? You know, that's what I'm curious about. That's a that's a question that I ask myself when I think about material. And how I'm going to relay that materials. What is a universal truth? Yeah. I think most of the universal truths in, in magic are already there. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of who's going who's gonna to find it first, you or the audience. Mm-hmm. And if, if you let the audience find it first, they may run off in a bad direction with it. Can you give an example? Um, okay. Uh, the... Uh, most tricks that involve destroying something and then healing it yeah. uh, speak in one way or another to, to the issues of uh, loss and 
coping with loss and and restoration. Uh, if you want to get a little more theological about it, death and resurrection, mm-hmm. you know, which is a pretty heavy uh, subtext to give to the kind of sort of rope, but it's kind of there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you get choices in the matter. Now, Juan Tomres and I we were once talking, and he said, what if the cut and restored rope is an umbilical cord? And so what if restoring the rope is actually enabling a return to the womb, mm-hmm. which, which is a very different story than transcending death or, 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 or something of that sort? Yeah. Um, and I frankly think... Uh, the idea of the cut and restore rope being about a return to the womb is not a great story for me. <laughs> but Juan is absolutely right. That could be the story. Yes. So it's sort of up to you as the performer to indicate what... Now, I'm not saying you... I'm not <laughs> suggesting that a performer should stand on stage and say, this piece of rope represents uh, the span of a person's life. Yeah. And I'm going to cut it, and that's as if someone is cut, you know, is run over by a car. Shouldn't uh, always be so on the nose. I don't think it has to be that explicit. That's the problem with most gospel magic is that it's all uh, it, it's all a substitution code. Mm-hmm. This represents this, and this represents this, and therefore we do this, and it represents this. And it's it's a pretty uh, uh, <laughs> sterile uh, mode of, of performance. But let's talk a- about the supernatural by using magic tricks. Well. <laughs> I think you can. I think you can. You know, Eugene Berger, who just left us. Yes. Uh, what was his single most famous piece? That's true. It was his version of the gypsy or Hindu thread. Mm-hmm. And he had several different presentations over the years, but the one that became best known and the one that became really associated with him mm-hmm. was about the complete destruction and then resurrection of the entire the universe. universe. That's pretty heavy for breaking up a piece of thread and restoring it. But it was there. But he, And in his case, he kind of talked it. Yeah. But, but there are other versions that don't necessarily require the talk. Sure. But they convey ideas. I, I wrote a, col- a column for Magic Magazine, Stan Allen's magazine. For the first five years of that magazine, I wrote a monthly column called Parallax. So for 60 months, 60 columns, I wrote a piece every month. And these were, there were no tricks. Uh, there, there, were, there was commentary. Sometimes it was meant to be funny. Sometimes it was meant to be philosophical. Sometimes people weren't sure which of the two it was. Uh, sometimes it was cynical. Sometimes it was uh, supportive. Uh, it was very, very different each month. Sure. But I was trying to address ideas and themes that you didn't find in too many magic magazines. And in one of the last columns I wrote, I think it was the second to last, actually, I wrote about the the gypsy thread, Mm -hmm. the Hindu thread, and I described three versions of it and their presentations. Uh, And they were three radically different presentations, but they all worked. And the first one was Peter Samuelson's uh, version of the gypsy thread, which is about relationships falling apart Mm. and how we, we dream that we could make them restore but with this wonderfully sad and wistful knowledge that we dream of that, we don't usually get to do it. Um, and a beautifully written script that, that is remarkable because when Peter starts it, the first few lines are funny. He's, he's, he's doing sort of quotes from a relationship that is from a, a, a domestic partnership, basically, that's falling apart. Mm-hmm. 
and initially it's funny and then and then suddenly it's not funny at all and it's very it, it hits home wow. and you sort of go geez i've i've lived through that uh or a version of that so that's really powerful and so that was the first one i talked about and then the second one i talked about was eugene's cosmic thread as it was sometimes called and again which was of the three versions i described the most explicit mm -hmm. uh and which took as its themes, you can't get bigger than the idea of the entire universe being destroyed and, and, and restored. Mm -hmm. And then the third version I, I, I talked about was Gate and Bloom's version. I, don't, I haven't seen it. Well, uh, Gaten's version is really beautiful. Uh, he does it, it's, it, he does it silently. Mm. He does. There's music. Uh, the music is is an Italian singer named Paolo Conti, uh, who's got a very gravelly voice, and and it's uh, the 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 piece uh, is is in French, and it's about uh, it's called Hello, Mr. Hemingway, and it's about uh, pub crawling, you know, bar hopping in the 1920s in Paris. But the words don't make any difference. When I saw Gaten do it for the first time, it was in Japan, so nobody was understanding <laughs> the lyrics. Uh, it, and he wasn't, he's not going for the lyrics, he's going for the tone. It, it yes. sets this really kind of uh, sad, but in a, in a, in a, a beautiful... Like a romantic... A, a beautiful sadness. Sure. Uh, not so much romantic, it's almost more like Weltschmerz, which is the German mm -hmm. word for kind of the, the pain of life, mm -hmm. you know. Melancholic, yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what Gaten does is he, he hands this thread around the audience. And so like 15 or more people each break off a piece of the thread, mm -hmm. which he kind of visually guides them to do. And then the pieces are collected and then they restore. And although not a word is spoken, it seemed to me that what this was clearly about was the, that fragile moment that we were sharing as an audience and the idea that these this particular group of people will never be together again not this precise group of people not who we all are at this moment even if some of us are the same a week from now a year from now it won't be the same mm -hmm. and we share this moment and then we're all going to go our separate ways and yet somehow this moment will never be destroyed yeah if we allow it to flourish. So that was my interpretation. And I wrote this article without ever asking Gaten, uh, what did he feel the piece was about? And so after I published it, I, I, I saw Gaten and I discussed it with him. And I said, is this anything close to what you're thinking when you perform it? Because my interpretation is completely valid because I was in the audience. And so that's what it meant to me. Yeah. But you might have had a completely different idea. And I was pleased that his response was, no, this is exactly what I, what I was thinking. Uh, but here, but there, okay, so here we've got three different, you know, this is a very rudimentary trick as far as the, the effect is concerned, mm -hmm. right? Versions of the torn and restored or, or cut and restored string or rope or cord or, or sash, you know, can be found in the 1500s uh, and, and are surely older than that. So here's this, this trick that's been, been done for, for half a millennium, at least. And, and you know, it, it, it fits the, the, the Hollywood term high concept mm -hmm. in that 
the whole thing can be described in one sentence, right? Piece of cord is cut or broken into many separate pieces and then restored back into one whole piece. That's, that's the trick. That's the effect. And yet here are three different performers, each of them an artist in his own right, each of them, each of them being someone who has something to say. Yeah. But what they choose to say, both in terms of the actual underlying concepts, but also in terms of the, the, the text they use, the presentational style they use. And for that matter, they don't all use the same method. Uh, so each one has taken this really basic and very old effect and turned it into something that resonates with, with an audience. And surely there are other presentations for the, the gypsy thread mm -hmm. that, that can go and, and that nobody's thought of yet, yeah. that, that even hundreds of years later, uh, nobody's thought of yet. So I think that's great. And I think, you know, Salvador, Salvador Dali once said, the first man to compare his, his, his romantic uh, partner to a rose was a genius. And the second man to do it was an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, yeah, I don't want to hear someone comparing their love to a, to a rose. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's at, at this point, it's pedestrian. Yeah. yeah. But, but find something about a rose that I haven't thought of. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm your fan. Well, you that's know? like uh, in some, a few of Shakespeare's sonnets, he would take the tropes and then subvert them yep. in that way. Yep. Uh, and those were hilarious and wonderful. Um, and we, we got on this because I was disparaging gospel magic. <laughs> no worries. No, it's all good. Um, and I just meant that... <laughs> oh, uh, Jesus turned water into wine, so I'm going to do that for you now. <laughs> that, that is what I find uh, ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, I think that... Um, all of those interpretations of the, the classic plot or the, the effect, and then finding, of course, your original, authentic, expressive version is, mm -hmm. you know, the, kind of the point of the whole thing. And then again, to get back, you have to try on your influences and copy at the beginning so you know what you do like and you don't like and what works and what doesn't work so that you can then create that original material. Um, it is 5.15. Mm-hmm. So I know you have to go. I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> and there's well, a lot of stuff that... We will just have to do this again. I would love to. I would be honored to. Um, there are a couple of final questions that sure. we can do just to wrap up. I want you to be able to get back uh, to your event this evening. But thank you so much for doing it. Sure. Uh, first question is, what's your favorite film? Uh, I, actually, I can answer that. Easily, only because I've addressed the question before. My favorite film was all about Eve. Mm, not heard of it. Uh, well, it was, up until recently, the most Oscar-nominated movie of all time. And it's still one of the largest number of nominations. And it won several as well. It was uh, came out in 1950. Uh, it stars Betty Davis uh, and, and George Sanders. Uh, it is... It's a backstage... Uh, story. It's about Broadway actors, but not while they're on stage. It's, mm -hmm. it's about kind of weird political backstabbing and things going okay. on behind the scenes. It's tremendously witty. The script, uh, which was written by the director, Joseph Mankiewicz, is 
just really smart and the performances are great and everything fits together very tightly. Uh, it's, it's delicious is what it is. Uh, it isn't, there are other movies that have had a bigger impact on me in terms of the medium of film. Mm -hmm. This is a very well-made film, but it doesn't push the boundaries of how to use film sure. to, to tell a story. And there are other films that have had much more impact on me in that regard. But All About Eve is just a great, great movie. It's, it's just, it's like sinking into a warm bathtub. Oh, it's, wow. It's, it's, it's. These are such interesting characters. Not all of them are likable. In fact, most of them are not, uh, although they're not all villains. But, but they have their flaws pretty close to the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but they're all people you want to spend time with. And so that's my favorite movie. Wow, great. Favorite piece from literature? Um, uh, boy, that's difficult. Um, something by Borges. Oh, great. Jorge Luis Borges, uh, Argentine writer who... Who uh, uh, he did some longer pieces, but but a lot of his stuff is is very short poems or or very short stories. Uh, one of the greatest magicians who's ever lived, albeit he never did a double lift, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, but his stories just address all the things magicians address, uh, but in words. And. Uh, I'm not sure it's. I, I'm. I'm not sure at any given moment I would answer with the same, sure, same story. But but uh, but probably something of his uh, would 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 be there. There are some other. I mean, I could, as with films, I could go on and make bigger lists. But uh, that's what comes to mind. No, that's great. Uh, and then, what was your? Actually, I'm going to ask you a question that Marcy wanted me to ask you. Which is, <laughs> when was the last time you saw magic that brought you to tears? Wow. Wow. Um, boy, that's a really hard question. Uh, thanks, Marcy. Um, <laughs> I don't cry very easily. Mm -hmm. um, I say that having cried more in the last two months than at any other time in my adult life because of the death of Eugene Berger, and that really just messed me up completely. Uh, and I'm still not in any way uh, adjusted to it. Because uh, he was my best friend for almost 40 years. Uh, but magic that, that makes me cry. Um, magic doesn't usually make me cry. Movies make me cry a lot. I cry mm. much more often at movies than you would think. Uh, and David Copperfield is the one who, who, who put his finger on that. Years ago, I was having a conversation with David. Uh, and he said, I think I have found the 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 key to making people cry and i said oh okay what's that he said it's not when someone has when someone good has something bad happen to them mm -hmm. you kind of think that would be it but it isn't it's after that when they get relieved when 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 something good then happens in the wake of something terrible mm -hmm. that's what turns on the waterworks he didn't he didn't use that vocabulary sure. but 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 he's right and i find this happens uh, uh, perhaps because seeing a movie, particularly in a, in a theater where you're surrounded by darkness and everything is, is sort of uh, focused on, on that big screen. Uh, there are moments in movies that make me water up. And, and uh, the weirdest one ever for me, <laughs> and I remember this very clearly, uh, 
was uh, I was on a ship, and I don't work that many ships, but I was on a ship years ago. I think this would have been in the mid-80s. And nowadays on ships, I gather they have like cable, not cable, but, you know, you can watch in your room on a, on a TV monitor on demand. Sure. So the equivalent of a cable. But back at, in the mid-80s, there was a movie theater and you, they scheduled showings of movies. And they were usually not first-run movies, but relatively recent. And so the, the movie they showed was the first Superman movie, the first modern one, the old Christopher Reeve. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I'd seen it. I saw it when it came out in the theaters and I thought for its time, I thought it was really good. And so, but I had nothing to do that afternoon. So I went to watch it again and I'm sitting in this almost empty movie theater and they're showing it on a big screen. And there's a scene in the movie, if you recall the movie, where Lois Lane, Margot Kidder is on the rooftop of the Daily Planet building. Mm-hmm. And there's some sort of, a. a an accident involving a helicopter trying to land on the roof or trying to take off where a cable gets caught in the gear and she gets knocked off the roof mm-hmm. and she is plummeting to her death. And suddenly this blue and red streak, it's the first time in the movie we see Superman as Superman. Yeah. And this apparition suddenly catches her in, in midfall and saves her life. And I started bawling. <laughs> I'm sitting in the audience and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I, why has this affected me? Yeah. First of all, I've seen this before. I knew what was coming. I've known about Superman since I was a child in the 50s. It's not like this is plowing any new territory. But some, this has hit something. This has resonated with me in a, in a profound way. And so, of course, I thought about it more because that's what I do. And I realized that what made me cry was... I fall, metaphorically, I fall off buildings all the time, and nobody ever catches me, right? I fall, I smash myself onto the ground, I pick myself up, I dust myself off, I hope that nothing's broken, and then I get on with things. Yeah. And, and the, 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 this moment of, of a bad thing, i.e. falling off a building, and being saved from that, yeah. uh, being allowed to recover from that, just hit me powerfully. And and magic doesn't usually address things like that. It does occasionally. Um, there are rare occasions when I see magic that it's so beautiful that I may come close to tears. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure how much magic I've seen that has actually brought me to tears. But tears are not the only... Of course not. The only criterion by which something is good. I mean, there are, I, I can certainly think of moments of magic that, is, that have caused the hair on the back of my neck to stand up and, or, the, or that have made my head spin mm-hmm. uh, or, or made me laugh uncontrollably. And, <laughs> and, and so all sorts of great responses. But off the top of my head, I, I'm, I'm trying to think if, there, if I've seen any magic, in, certainly in recent years, that has actually caused me to cry. And I don't think I have. And of course, as soon as we finish this interview, <laughs> an hour from now, I'm going to say, oh, you should have, you should have mentioned so-and-so because, but at the moment I'm not thinking about anything. It's an interesting question. Sure. Do you have an answer? I, so I do have an answer. Um, and it was at the Magic Castle on New Year's Eve. Uh, my dad was in town mm-hmm. and it was my first time taking him to the Magic Castle. And I have an enormous fondness for Mike Pichotta. 
Oh, I think Mike's great. And I took my dad down there. And I all, just full disclosure, we'd had about half a bottle of Jameson before we went okay. to that castle. <clears throat> but we get down there and I'm standing there and I'm watching Mike perform for my dad. I'm watching one of my favorite performing magicians. Right. Floor my dad with killer material in the Magic Castle, you know, and I'm from a little town in Louisiana and he was always very supportive of me. And, he, you know, Mike finished and I just was watching my dad watch Mike and I just started bawling. Because <laughs> it was just... Okay. It was just a... Mike is a beautiful performer and he's not afraid of the magic. Yes. Well, I think Mike is, is really, really good and really, really special and... Uh, um, I, I, I usually refer to him as the hidden gem of the of the Magic Castle because uh, a lot of people don't, don't even know he's down there several nights a week in the Hatton Hare pub. Um, but that's not. But you but you weren't crying because of the magic per se. I wasn't crying because you're, of the magic per se. You're crying because of the the experience your father was having. Yes. And how that in turn affected you. Yes. Which is completely valid, but it wasn't a magic trick that made you cry. That's true. So, uh, boy, I'm going to be thinking about that over the next few days, and something's going to hit me, and I'm going to go, oh, oh, and we, and we can talk you know about what? that the next time. I actually, time. I do have an answer. Yeah? That is a magic trick. Tell me. That made me cry. I was watching, uh, this was at Pebble Palooza, which is this tiny little convention that Lance Pierce does in right, Dallas. Right, And I, through that convention and through Magic Con and knowing Dan and Dave, yeah. I had become close with Tony Chang. Mm -hmm. And Tony had come... Uh, down to that convention and we were sitting in the lobby sessioning and he was telling me about how he got really burnt out because he was very academic about yeah. his sleight of hand but he wasn't really performing he wasn't getting things out of it that he wanted to and then Gabby Pereira's came to town mm. and totally blended his brain yep and so he's telling me this story and it's at, you know 3am and I was like wow that's amazing and he kind of looks around and he says do you want to see some of Gabby's material? I was like, oh my God, I would love to. And so Tony goes, okay. And he points to just a couple people and he pulls us over into the corner. And he sits there and he does about 45 minutes of Gabby's material flawlessly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony's his technique is incredible. But he was really, really, I mean, it, it was so powerful for him when he saw Gabby mm -hmm. do it that he was really trying to do it all the justice that yep. he could muster. Yep. His whole... His whole spirit was in it. Right. And so it was all phenomenal. And Gabby does this trick, uh, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Are you familiar with, uh, he, he has an ace through five. Yeah. And he lays them down on the table and then they're reversed when you turn. I've not seen Gabby. I've seen Gabby work, but not, not do that particular trick. This, this was maybe the sixth or seventh trick that yeah. Tony had done. And it's so simple. Yeah. And it's just five car and it's just. Yeah. And he, he just the delicacy with which Tony did right. it and and all and he turned that first card over in the second and I just I just started tearing out. Oh, that's like, great. This is so beautiful and so simple that's, that's and wonderful. so yeah. 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 I forgot about that. Yeah. That was a great moment. I mean there are certainly magicians who've given me experiences as profound as any other art form I've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. Whether it's uh, Del Rey or uh, Ricciardi, Tommy Wonder, you know, these are 
then I could go on, but, but mm -hmm. these are people who, whose work had an impact that, that I don't even think I can properly express in words, you know, but crying per se, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that more. Okay. And then the customary final question yes. is when was the hardest time you were full? And by that, I just mean, you mentioned earlier, your head spun. I mean, if you can remember the hardest time or a time. Well, Ricciardi and Del Rey, two of the people I just mentioned, uh, certainly accomplished that. And as far as Tommy Wonder, uh, the greatest moments in Tommy's work were not necessarily that you were fooled. It was that you were misled and then allowed to know you were misled, which is not quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. When Tommy first came to the United States, it was 1976, I believe. And one of the first things, he, he came for a lecture tour, but he did the Fector Convention. And in those days, I was living on the East Coast, so I went to the Fector Convention every year. And nobody had heard of him. He didn't have the name Tommy Wonder yet. He was still Jos Bemuma, Jos Bema, which was short for Josef Bemuma. Anyway, uh, and we met during the course of the convention. We were about the same age, and, and we had some conversations and hit it off. So I... I knew just from talking to him this was a bright and interesting guy and and so when it was time for him to perform i happened to be standing kind of on the side of the room such that i had a good view of the performing table but with very little turn of my head i could see the entire audience mm. and tommy did the cups and balls <laughs> which at that time nobody had seen nobody had heard about i'm completely cold and this was at a time when the factory convention used to be 100 people, of whom 90 were really worthwhile people. Mm -hmm. The factory convention these days is 200 people, of whom 90 are worthwhile. So the, the, the ratio has changed. Yeah. Uh, but this was a, a room of heavy, heavy hitters. These were people who, many of them are names you would know, and they were just major players in, in close-up. And when Tommy hit the first surprise load, which if you recall the routine is when the pom-pom from the cord of the, of the drawstring bag that he took the cups from appears under the cup. And of course you immediately look over to the bag because you're saying it can't be the same pom-pom, but indeed it is because it's gone from the bag. And the whole room just as one was just completely shocked. There was a gasp. And, and I remember I had enough presence of mind, although I was gasping too, mm -hmm. to just turn my head and see this room full of really expert close-up guys with their jaws hanging open. And then he went back into the routine. And of course, he got to the, the payoff, which is that the pom-pom shows up under one of the cups. And you look over to the bag again, just to see, can that possibly still be the same pom-pom from the bag? And the bag is gone. And he lets you get just a tiny fraction of an inch ahead of him where you go, could the bag conceivably be in, inside the cup? That's not possible. And then he shows that it is. And, and okay, I wasn't fooled in the sense that I knew that somehow in front of a hundred people, all of them well-versed in magic and with no camera to, to confine the angles. In fact, people watch them from different angles. And yet he had managed to sneak the pom-pom under the cup twice and then sneak the entire bag under the other cup. And no one had seen it or felt it or in any way perceived it or expected yes. it. 
it didn't fool the audience. I mean, people didn't know the, the details, but the basic method we all understood. Yes. He somehow managed to do that, to grab these things and shove them inside the cup and not have us see it, even though it was right in front of us. So I wouldn't say it fooled me in, in, the, in the literal mm-hmm. sense of that word, but mm-hmm. Jesus, it, it just tore the top of my head off. Yes. Uh, and that's certainly up there with the, the, the most astonishing moments I've ever seen in magic. Jamie mentioned this exact same occurrence that you're mm, talking about. Yeah. And he recently wrote a take two about uh, Tommy yeah. Winder. And I mentioned to him that that routine translates about as well as, as you can translate real magic through video. Because I was totally and completely mind blown. Yep. Even though I knew the cups and bowls and yep. was familiar with yep. the method. And, and I, I mentioned to him that that is about as good as it gets yep. through video. Did you ever see Tommy Long? I didn't. Well, uh, I hate to say this, but as good as Tommy was on video, he was that much better live. I to imagine. Yeah. So that would be high on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned uh, some others. Uh, uh, Ricciardi. Uh, certainly Delray. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Channon is a name that people have largely forgotten. Uh, I remember a really great moment where I wasn't fooled, but I got to bask in being surrounded by people who were completely fooled. And, and that was kind of an interesting experience. And this was back around 78. Uh, Joe Stevens ran a convention in Wichita. This was the last one he did before moving the operation to Las Vegas. And his big fish for that convention, he had some very strong people booked, but, but the big draw was, was Fred Capps. Mm. And for a lot of these people, they'd never seen Fred before. And there was a lot of hype on Fred, you know, various important people, uh, had proclaimed him the best magician in the world, but this is before home video. Uh, this is before the internet. So if you hadn't seen him, you hadn't seen him. You might've seen a photograph, but you just didn't know who he was or what he was capable of. I was lucky enough that I had seen Fred and met him prior to this, but the majority of the people there had not. And for reasons that I'll never fully understand, the first thing they had Fred scheduled to do was a lecture. And that's kind of weird. Yeah. Right? You don't let him establish his magic. So the room was was full of several hundred magicians, all very eager. But there was also a, a bit of an attitude on the part of the audience. Really? Well, you know, this hype is pretty heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. World's greatest. Are you really? I'll decide it. I mean, that was kind of the, the, the vibe in the room was, was, was kind of, it was we'll as if the people were, were, were sitting with their arms folded, even though they weren't necessarily literally doing that. Yeah. It was sort of saying, well, we'll see. And so what happens is uh, Jay Marshall comes out and does an intro in which he says that Fred Capps is the greatest magician in the world. And then Jay introduces Di Vernon who comes out and says that Fred Capps is the greatest magician in the world and then introduces Fred. So this is like very, very (laughs) heavy hype. 
And the, the and there's some real tension as the audience is sort of going, you know, nobody can be that good. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Fred, who was a very debonair guy, uh, was I remember he was wearing a, a very nicely tailored suit. He's very continental, you know, and he, he spoke English perfectly, but with a a, a nice lilting Dutch accent and. And he, he started off by, by saying how pleased he was to be there and how much it meant to him that Jay Marshall and Di Vernon, two of the people he most admired, had said such nice things in introduction to him. And you could feel the audience thawing just a little bit because he was being so gracious. Mm -hmm. And as he was talking, he had a coin, which I think was a silver dollar. It was a good size coin anyway. Sure. And he was just sort of casually tossing the coin from hand to hand as he was talking. And he talked about how nice it was to be in the American heartland and, and how he was really looking forward to the rest of the convention because this was one of the, on the first day. And they're, they're thawing a little bit, but there's still this kind of edge, this attitude. And he said how much magic meant to him and how he had some things to share. And, uh, and then the coin was gone. And it was gone. I mean, there were no fast actions of the hand. There were no thrusts or or you know it was just gone and the the i would say that in this room of 150 200 magicians probably five of us knew where the coin knew what he'd done mm -hmm. um, that, and that's being generous at most five and everyone else was just they'd just seen a real moment of magic as small and as trivial as it could be. I mean, it's vanishing a coin, and yet it was a real moment of magic. And you could feel the whole audience go, all right, all right, you've made your point, we get it. You're the world's greatest magician, and now we'd like to listen to anything you want to tell us. And it was quite fabulous. Uh, it was really a, a, a thrilling thing to... And I, 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 the fact that I was one of the handful of people who knew what he'd done... I don't say that to brag, I'm just reporting. Uh, part of me wishes I hadn't known what he'd done uh, because I would have liked to have had that opportunity to, uh, uh, to be that devastated by, mm -hmm. by what he had done. Uh, but but uh, I certainly had other opportunities with Fred and other people to have that moment of pure not knowing. Uh, but it was a great thing to witness, mm -hmm. and I don't think I would have witnessed it the same way. If I'd been fooled, I would have been focusing on myself, yes. on, on, boy, he, I just had no idea what he did. So in that sense, it was kind of nice that I did know what he'd done, so that I was able to just take in the whole room mm. and see this whole attitude shift on the part of all these people. So again, that's not a case of being fooled, but it's a case of being among a group of people who are utterly fooled. I mean, I get fooled all the time. Derek Delgaudio in his show, uh, the, the one currently running, I've, I would say at least half the stuff in that show fools me. Mm -hmm. Nor do I have any particular motivation to try and understand how it works. It's just really good magic, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful and great. And I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much, Max. This it's been a pleasure, a pleasure that we finally got uh, the, the scheduling to work out. And, uh, and we'll do it again uh, with less time in between. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Magical Thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.